Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hello, everyone. Today we are going to bring you the concurring decision in the Queen and Jobadon. If you'd like to hear the majority decision, please go back to the previous episode. I hope you enjoy. The reasons of Justice Sopinka and Justice Stevenson were delivered by Justice Sopinka. I have had the advantage of reading the reasons of Justice Gonfier, and while I agree with his disposition of the matter, I am unable to agree with his reasons. This appeal involves the role that consent plays in the offense of criminal assault. Unlike my colleague, I am of the view that consent cannot be read out of the offense. I came to this conclusion for two reasons. One, Consent is a fundamental element of many criminal offenses, including assault. And two, the statutory provision creating the offense of assault explicitly provides for the element of consent. Facts. The facts of this case are substantially as put forward by Justice Gonthier in his reasons. For the purposes of my reasons, I wish to highlight a few crucial facts. The altercation which led to the unfortunate death of Rodney Haggart was a result of a consensual fistfight. The trial judge found that the fight commenced after mutual invitations to fight between Haggart and the accused. The accused was found to have honestly and reasonably believed that Haggart had consented to a quote, fair, end quote, fistfight. The judge also found that Haggart was rendered unconscious as a result of the first blow from the accused, but that the accused continued to strike Haggart four to six times while he was unconscious. 1. General Principles of Criminal Law While the consent of a victim cannot transform a crime into lawful conduct, it is a vital element in determining what conduct constitutes a crime. It is a well-accepted principle of the criminal law that the absence of consent is an essential ingredient in the actus reus. Thus, it is not the theft to steal if the owner consents in consensual intercourse is not sexual assault. In D. Stewart, Canadian Criminal Law, a treatise, the author states, The general principle, to which there are exceptions, that the true consent of the victim is always a defense to criminal responsibility, is a fundamental principle of the criminal law. He later adds at page 472 that It is disappointing that our courts have based the rejection only on statutory construction. Lack of consent is a fundamental principle. Donovan, the English line of authority, should have been rejected even if lack of consent had not been expressed in our definition of assault. In Lemieux and the Queen, this court held that the offense of breaking and entering was not made out when it was carried out by a prearrangement with the agent of the owner. The consent of the owner deprived the activity of an essential feature of the actus reus. Lack of consent as a part of the actus reus is often confused with the defense of honest belief in consent, which relates not to the actus reus of the offense, but to the mens rea or mind state of the accused. Although there is no consent, an honest belief that there was consent may constitute a defense. See Papa John and the Queen. There is moreover no generally accepted exception to this principle with respect to the intentional infliction of physical harm. There are many activities in society which involve the intentional application of force which may result in serious bodily harm but which are not criminal. Surgical operations and sporting events are examples. 
It was, no doubt, the absence of any exception to this principle that led Parliament to enact Section 14 of the Criminal Code, which creates an exception for the most serious of assaults, the intentional infliction of death. In my view, Parliament has chosen to extend this principle to all assaults save murder in the interest of making this aspect of the criminal law certain. I see no evidence in the clear and simple language of Section 265 that it intended to outlaw consensual fighting in the interests of avoiding breaches of the peace or to allow it if a judge thought it occurred in circumstances that were socially useful. Rather, the policy reflected in Section 265 is to make the absence of consent a requirement in the definition of the offence, but to restrict consent to those intentional applications of force in respect of which there is a clear and effective consent by a victim who is free of coercion and misrepresentation. Instead of reading the words, quote, without the consent of another person, end quote, out of section 265, I'm of the opinion that the intention of Parliament is respected by close scrutiny of the scope of consent to an assault. Instead of attempting to evaluate the utility of the activity the trial judge will scrutinize, the consent to determine whether it apply to the very activity which is the subject of the charge. The more serious the assault, the more difficult it should be to establish consent. 2. Interpretation of Section 265 Section 265 states that, quote, a person who commits an assault when, without the consent of another person, he applies force intentionally to that other person, end quote. My colleague, Justice Gonfier, concludes that on the basis of cases which applied the common law, that section should be interpreted as excluding the absence of consent as an element of the actus reus in respect of an assault with intent to commit intentional bodily harm. In coming to his conclusion, my colleague relies on a number of English authorities. The issue was not finally resolved in England until the decision of the English Court of Appeal on a reference to it by the Attorney General in 1980. See Attorney General's Reference, number 6 of 1980. Unconstrained by the expression of legislative policy, the court molded the common law to accord with the court's view of what was in the public interest. On this basis, the court discarded the absence of consent as an element in assaults in which actual bodily harm was either caused or intended. Exceptions were created for assaults that have some positive social value such as sporting events. In Canada, the criminal law has been codified and the judiciary is constrained by the wording of sections defining criminal offences. The court's application of public policy is governed by the expression of the public policy in the criminal code. If Parliament intended to adopt the public policy which the English Court of Appeal developed, it used singularly inappropriate language. It made the absence of consent a specific requirement and provided that it is applied to all assaults without exception. The conflict in the Canadian cases which my colleague's review discloses is largely due to the application of these two disparate strains of public policy. In my opinion, the above observations as to the appropriate use of public policy are sufficient to conclude that the absence of consent cannot be swept away by a robust application of judge-made policy. This proposition is strengthened and confirmed by the specific dictates of the code which reference to the essential elements of a criminal offense. Section 9 sub a of the code provides that, quote, notwithstanding anything in this act or any other act, no person shall be convicted, a, of an offense at common law, end quote. The effect of my colleague's approach is to create an offense where one does not exist under the terms of the code by application of the common law. 
The offense created is the intentional application of force with the consent of the victim. I appreciate that my colleague's approach is to interpret the section in light of the common law, but in my view, use of the common law to eliminate an element of the offense that is required by statute is more than interpretation and is contrary not only to the spirit, but also the letter of section 9a. One of the basic reasons for section 9a is the importance of certainty in determining what conduct constitutes a criminal offense. That is the reason we have codified the offense in the criminal code. An accused should not have to search the books to discover the common law in order to determine if the offense charged is an indeed an offense at law. Where does one search to determine the social utility of a fight during a hockey game to take one example? There are those that would argue that it is an important part of the attraction. Judges may not agree. Is this a matter for judicial notice or does it require evidence? The problem of uncertainty which the social utility test creates is greater than searching out the common law, a problem which leads to the prohibition in section 9a. Application to this appeal Given the danger inherent in the violent activity in this case, the scope of consent required careful scrutiny. The trial judge found that the consent given by Hagar did not extend to a continuation of the fight once he had lost consciousness. By striking Haggart once he was unconscious, the accused acted beyond the scope of the consent of Haggart, and thus committed the actus reus of assault. Although satisfying the actus reus, did the accused have the requisite state of mind? I now turn to the issue of honest belief in consent. The accused believed that the victim, Haggart, was consenting to a fair fight. In his own evidence, the accused stated that the object of the fight was to prevent injury to himself. The trial judge indicated, I accept the evidence of the accused that he did not mean to kill Mr. Haggart or cause him serious bodily harm. He believed that Haggart consented to a fair fight. It was a fight in anger and no friendly sparring contest or test of strength. The object of the fight was to hit the other man as hard as he physically possible until he gave up or retreated. Physical injury was intended and contemplated. It appears clear from the findings of the trial judge that the accused had an honest belief in consent, but that consent extended only until Haggart, quote, gave up or retreated, end quote. The extent of the consent given by Haggart did not, therefore, extend to being struck once he had been knocked unconscious. The accused knew that Haggart's consent did not extend beyond consciousness. In my opinion, Based on his own findings, the trial judge misconstrued the evidence with respect to the accused's belief that all the blows were struck to prior to Haggart losing consciousness. The following passage in the evidence of the accused shows that he knew that Haggart was unconscious after the second punch. Q. What happened? A. It dazed him a fair amount and when he was still struggling, he was swinging at me. He was cocking back. He couldn't cock back because his back was on the car and his elbow would only go to his side, and he swung and I swung again and I hit him, and he was out after the second punch. Q. Where did the second punch land? A. In the same spot in the cheek or the cheek or the jaw. Q. You are telling us about two punches outside. A. That is correct. Q. Were there any others? A. No, there were not. In his reasons, the trial judge found that the accused struck Haggart four to six times after Haggart was unconscious. The trial judge, therefore, did not accept the testimony of the accused that he struck Haggart only twice, and one is left with the admission of the accused that he realized Haggart was unconscious after the second punch. 
By continuing to pummel Haggard after the accused realized Haggard was unconscious, the accused acted, to his knowledge, beyond the ambit of Haggard's consent, thereby committing an assault. Having found the accused committed an assault, and given that Mr. Haggard died as a result of that unlawful act, the accused is therefore guilty of manslaughter via Criminal Code Section 222, Sub 5, Sub A, and 234. I would therefore dispose of the appeal as proposed by Justice Gonthier. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. Hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy at julielundyart.com. Music by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. We're always open to ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out at Legal Listening on Twitter and at legallistening.com. We'll talk to you next time.